Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. We're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. You're just tired because the world is weary. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. I, I, I'm having conversations with people and, 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 and it's sometimes you wonder, are you, I feel like I'm really good at what I do. And sometimes you wonder, am I, why can't I reach you as reasonable, as sensible, as strategic, as careful and thoughtful as I am with every word? Why can't I reach you? Let's start there, John. Like, I mean, I don't want to put out your business there, but I just, I think that you would speak for a lot of people over the last two years. I'm like, what the fuck? the fuck i'm a professional communicator i'm i'm very very careful about what i deliver how i deliver it so that i'm building the bridge by telling you you're not bad for having privilege but why do you want to fight me when i when i describe privilege as neutrally as possible something that doesn't offend you it does not mean white person it does not mean white person that you have not had hardship it does not mean that you were gifted anything why do you view this as a threat that i simply pointed out to you when i lay it out for you this simply I have a friend in a wheelchair. I had never considered it's, this. I am privileged. Yeah. Like you're doing, you're, you're putting all the tools in place. So I come here not to fight. And yet exactly. still they- That's they, the they, irritating they, part, right? Cause you know better than perhaps many, most people that I can do um, blunt, rude, thoughtless turn of phrase as, as well as anybody. I can be uh, vitriolic and and purposefully divisive, and yet, in the last five years, I have made this extraordinary effort um, on my own behalf because I think it's better for me, but also because I think it's more effective to think in the minutia. Not just what I say, I write words out, I think about how that will lend, I put myself in the position of an audience member in lots of different, and yet, no matter how civil, smart, polite um, I make some description, no matter how vulnerable I am in describing the many ways that I am flawed, even if I get nods in the room, even if I get letters back from people as I do, I come back a month later and I'm answering the same question again. And that's on the, that's, this is not fair because some people are, are moved and change and, and grab, grab it. But why am I missing this chunk of the population? And, and, you know, obviously someone like me doesn't want it to be because I'm not skilled, but I'm also trying to figure out what, what am I missing? Because I know the theory. I know about motivation. I, 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 you're, I you know, I study other people's work to understand but it just seems like some of this is simply that if 
a certain group of people were to understand the world in any way that was objective, nuanced, real, it would throw what they understand about the world into such chaos that it cannot be accepted. And so that's what, I, I don't know what, that's the answer, but it's what it feels like. But isn't that some of what's happening, I don't know if it's different in Britain, but isn't that some of what's happening in America when we have just, he was so great on with us, Ellie Mistal, and he was talking about the idea that the founding fathers, that was a negotiation between terrorists, between terrorist <laughs> groups, and he presents it that way, and you start from there and go through critical, uh, critical race theory and through everything that happens in both countries. But if your starting point is the birth of a nation is a negotiation between terrorist groups to set out a, press, a set of principles that's going to be systemic and is forever going to devour black and brown and non-whites in the meat grinder, like, of course, the 2022 evolution of whatever that starting point is is going to be pretty dismal. I mean, I've, I've not thought about that characterization. Um, it, and by the way, it is happening in Britain. And if, if that's a bad start, think about Britain's. Uh, think, think about our uh, colonial aspirations. Think about what we did in terms of um, our entreaties into India and during partition, um, when India and Pakistan were separated, um, two million people dead. But again, this is one of those things where uh, America, uh, when I went to America, I, I learned American history in, I went to high school for one year in Toledo and I learned American history. But it's a really interesting take on American history that seems to skip over very many pivotal things. British history is the same. I learned more about Henry VIII's wives than I learned about colonialism, Windrush, stuff that was happening a lot more recently than that. And it's because we pick and choose the bits. I, I learned about Thomas Aquinas and Thomas More. I didn't learn about, about the way that Britain treated the world as its subjugated servants. And it, it leads to this, this willful ignorance, this, this willful gap. There's this great big blight in our historical timeline. And, and we can look at the timeline without ever really seeing it. And that means that now when you try and explain things that are derived from that blight on the timeline, people have to not just not see it, but refute it. Not because the individual thing, critical race theory, or um, I don't know, abortion or anything else is so terrible in and of itself as a subject to discuss, but because discussing this subject forces you to then see the blight that you've ignored. Well, you just mentioned the idea of why can't I reach these people, and i that's a pretty good working theory. In fact, I don't want to assume just simple ignorance and hatred from reasonable people because they don't like that you're black or don't know how they don't like inside that you're black or gay or any of it. I'd prefer to think of it as a, a blind spot from reasonable people who simply cannot understand your viewpoint but you're asking them to change the things they've always known you know how hard that is as a as a psychologist if hell john i believed that america was something different than it was and none of my history books taught me anything different i had to get to adulthood and just talk to others who were telling you you know those books were whitewashed right that that's not the truth that you got as history see I, i'm not even trying to get people to change what they believe uh, I think what happens inside your head is is 
you know, it's useful to explore. I'm a coach. I'm interested in people developing their minds and their mindsets. But I'm asking people to change how they behave. And I know people think that how you behave is determined by what you think, but it isn't always. And it's easily controllable because each of us has been in a situation where someone powerful, influential, or important to us has done something that has made us want to react and we have not reacted. And it's not just because of the consequence of it, it's because we respect that person and we choose not to respond in a way that's aggressive. You're cut off in traffic. You realize that the person cut you off is your boss. You've gone from wanting to flip that person off to being able to withhold that. And that's what I'm asking. You're in a workplace. And don't forget, most of the work we do is not about inclusion. It's just about leadership and culture and how you build a high-performing team, how you have to, in a team, sometimes you have to bite your tongue in a team, sometimes, and you'll know this from, from NBA, watching the NBA for all these years, you'll have teammates who you do not have a lot of time for. But if, one of the, but if somebody from an external team knocks you down, you will be there and you will take the fine to stop that from happening. It's not really about what you feel about the person. It's about how you maintain the integrity of your team. It's how you maintain the integrity of your organization. It's how you win. Because that's what I'm about. I want to help people win in this weird, disrupted world. But I can't get people to, to make these changes to behavior. I think I said this to you before, but one of my colleagues pointed out, um, it's, it's a quote from another uh, psychologist, actually. I, I don't know the name. Um, who said that, that change is perceived by many to be violence against the status quo. It really explains the visceral reaction you see from people when they say, you must wear a mask. I've never worn a mask. It's violence against the status quo. Even the language that people use is about you're trying to do harm to me rather than I'm trying to save your life. I'm trying to get people to realize that the change that we're going through is, is you know, if you don't change, if you don't evolve in terms of the world of work, you're done. One of the things that I wanted to do in general with South Beach Sessions and always have wanted to do in our conversations is just sort of show the audience a conversation that you and I might otherwise have. So we've been rolling all on all of this uh, without your knowledge, and I'm sure those next, uh, those last seven minutes will be entertaining to everybody because they will see you not in the character that has to be. John, black people have to eat so much shit. You have to do so much so that you could reach across the aisle gently so that people aren't threatened by you asking for decency for equality two very simple things and then john your entire life the entire time i've known you anyway you have been fundamentally decent about being dignified about eating the shit required to can i reach across this bridge to please please be more decent to others and it has hurt me to watch you get tired because you're endlessly doing your mother's deathbed work of, I just wish to reach you so I could leave this little dollop of land a little bit better than it was before I got here. That's the goal, right? Leave it better than you found it. It is the goal. I mean, I'm not ready to, 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 to quit at this point, but it, 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 is, it is frustrating. But so many things hit me, like, because you and I have talked about Tim um, Hardaway many times. And, and this week, I, I remember, you know, I don't watch much of what's going on in the NBA, but I saw some stories start to percolate about Tim Hardaway and he's in the Hall of Fame 
uh, running now. And I was never one of the people who said he shouldn't be, by the way. Um, he's clearly a, a remarkable basketball player in his time. He's clearly a Hall of Fame worthy. But it really wounded me when I saw people talking about this in a way that was like what he did back then. He's a different person now. And I've said this to you before. You know how accessible NBA players are to each other, how easily we can connect. If I wanted to talk to Tim Duncan tomorrow, it would be a matter of seconds before I could get a number or Deke or anybody else. He's never once spoken to me. All these years past, he's never once said, I'm sorry. Because you know what I would say? Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. You know, he's hoping you get in the Hall of Fame this year. But he's never once said, I'm sorry. And I spent a long time kind of processing the idea that I had to react with such civility to something so heinously cruel. And he's never once said, I'm sorry. And this is the weird world we live in where it almost feels like in some of these articles, it's me being blamed for him not being in the Hall of Fame right now. And I don't know that I did anything wrong. Let me talk to you, speaking of doing something wrong, about what's going on with Phil Mickelson. He has made a tortured apology now because he is losing a sponsor, a sponsor that I'm not sure whether that sponsor is offended by what he said or offended by its business interests with the Saudis. I haven't looked up the tentacles of this, but you know how intertwined some of this money is, this dirty money is with bad outfits. So originally, and he said it was off the record, but this has been denied vehemently by the reporter who says it was most certainly not off the record. Quote, they're scary mother bleepers to get involved with, he said of the Saudis. We know they killed, and then they mention a Washington Post reporter. They don't Kishogi, mention, yeah. yeah, they don't mention that it's with a bone saw and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. They've been able to get by with manipulative, coercive, strong-arm tactics because we, the players, have no recourse. As nice a guy as Jay Monahan, the PGA Tour commissioner, comes across as, unless you have leverage, he won't do what's right, and the Saudi money has finally given us that leverage. I'm not sure I even want the SGL to succeed but just the idea of it is allowing to, us to get things done with the PGA Tour, end quote. There's so much wonderfully wrong with all of this. Um, uh, where do we even start? The idea that the leader of the PGA is being compared to the leader of the Saudis and implicitly the murderous and other activities. I think what's interesting about this is this statement says what sports has always known and stood for. It is simply so exposing to sport that it is unacceptable. The World Cup Stadium in Qatar has got almost literally 3,000 odd dead bodies. Um, people died, almost all of them non-indigenous people, Pakistanis especially, but lots of other groups of, of people who built that stadium are dead. This is nothing new. Sports always known that it will, it will I mean, the, the Olympics, what a farce. What a farce to have a set of principles of Olympism and yet allow a company that openly cheats to be to compete by changing their name from Russia or USSR to rock. To have an athlete in that games who tests as positive for apparently taking their granddad's medication when an American athlete was banned from participation 
because she smoked pot, which I think we all know is not a performance-hunting drug. But this is what sport is. It, what's, what Mickelson's mistake is to speak truthfully about what sport is. A weird, manipulative game where any angle to get ahead... And I'm, by sport, I mean big sport here. I'm not talking about kids playing. Big sport is this ugly business where, where human dignity and indeed human life is irrelevant. Whether you're talking about concussions... In, in the NFL or in rugby or in football in the United Kingdom, whether you're talking about the abuse of gymnasts within uh, uh, Olympic gymnastics, or whether you're talking about uh, football stadiums and in, in, in football World Cup in Qatar, or whether you're talking about this, it's all the same. What about the apology? Quote, although it doesn't look this way now, given my recent comments, my actions throughout this process have always been with the best interest of golf, my peers, sponsors, and fans. There is the problem of off-the-record comments being shared out of context and without my consent, but the bigger issue is that I use words that do not reflect my true feelings or intentions. It was reckless, I offended people, and I'm deeply sorry for my choice of words. I'm beyond disappointed and will make every effort to self-reflect and learn from this. Yeah, that's bollocks. For starters, there isn't anybody, uh, certainly not somebody who's been around for as long as he has, who doesn't understand when you talk to a journalist in any capacity, nothing is off the record. Nothing is off the record. It may be non-attributable, but it's never off the record. And, and when you say something this inflammatory, this outrageously incendiary, you can't expect it not to be news. The apology is 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 really fascinating because it's not it's apologizing for the impact on sport and about sport. It's not apologizing for the fact that nowhere and at no time should one balance the interests of a sport against the life of human beings or even one person. That's the really interesting part. But it's hard for people to, to... It's hard for sport or any part of sport to get up on its high horse about this, right? Because if you're a fan of boxing, and I've said this many times before and people hate me for it and I don't care. If you're a fan of boxing, you are watching a sport whose entire goal is to create a brain injury. A brain injury that at any point from this second when it happens to 40 years from now, when your granddaughter on the steps of the Olympic torch lighting will have to wipe the dribble from your chin will create huge, awful damage. So it's really hard to have a position on human dignity and human life if you love a sport which is in entire goal is to create an injury that will create that kind of terrible scenario, either death immediately or, to me, a worse death in the destruction of who you are. So this is, you know, it's such a fascinating apology, which is apologizing to sport but not for what was actually said. Apologizing for how it was said, not for the words that were used with such a lack of care. It's frustrating. And also the people who are making it about his age, stop it. People are always at pains to point out, well, he's, 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 he's so well known now, not because of his, his huge, long, illustrious career, but because he became the oldest bloke to win some whatever it was. <laughs> it's like this is not this is not I don't I don't know. No, I just thought it was funny the how dismissive that is. The oldest bloke to win some whatever it was is whatever it was. Uh, and I know it was a big deal, right? I know, but I know it was no, a big no, deal. No, no, it's just 
I loved how condescending that was, and so I just enjoyed it. I'm sorry to have interrupted you. Yes, it was no, a big deal. No, no, but it, 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 it's whatever not as big it a was deal, that he won. Not, not as big a deal as bone-sawing a, journalism to death, uh, a journalist to death. Yes, but uh, agreed. And the thing is, though, it's not... It, people are going to try and make this about the fact that he's a doddery old bloke, and so, of course, he makes mistakes. Except, if we asked him what kind of phone he used, it wouldn't be a 90s flip phone. He'd be using an iPhone, so we can get used to that, or an Android. He'd be, he can get used to that. So people in this world, we need to realize this is not because he's old. This is because he is absolutely inculcated into what sport truly is and understands to his core how ruthless it is. And how ruthless commerce can be because on his desire to gain possession of the media rights, this was the quote, and this is the quote that abides, that tolerates, that gives voice to, yeah, I know they're terrible, but... I know they murder, but, quote, he says of the PGA, not Saudi Arabia, they're sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars worth of digital content we could be using for our social media feeds. The players need to own all of that. We played those shots. We created those moments. We should be the ones to profit. The tour doesn't need that money. They're already sitting on an $800 million cash stockpile. How do you think they're funding the PIP or investing $200 million in the European tour? The tour is supposed to be a nonprofit that distributes money to charity. How the hell is it legal for them to have that much cash on hand? The answer is it's not, but they always want more and more. They have to control everything. Their ego won't allow them to make the concessions they need to. Yeah, that, that's definitely as bad as a state that murders people. But then again, you know, and this is the other part too, where I, I hope that people don't think this is a, this is a point for celebration about um, how we can make fun of countries with a certain religious uh, majority, uh, Muslim majority, and pretend that, that other countries like Britain and America are blameless in this. Because we're not in the same, you know, whiff of this statement being made about gay people being thrown off buildings. We have bills being attempted to be passed and probably will be passed in Florida that will enable uh, teachers against the will of students who are LGBTQ to tell their parents, knowing that there's a disproportionate number of LGBT students who kill themselves knowing that there's a disproportionate number of them who end up on the streets of major cities because they are thrown out by their parents. The same callous disregard for human life on the basis of arbitrary principles is, is pervasive. It's so frustrating. Isn't, isn't it just exhausting? How do you, this is, you know, people often challenge me that I should like sports more. And I, I'm trying to understand outside of, even if I look at six-year-olds, if I, if I try to look at six-year-old, I don't know, football in England, I would be as drawn and, and I would notice as readily the madness of, of parents on the sideline as I would the cluster of completely chaotic children in the field. If we go up to AAU, I would understand that there's a bunch of kids being exploited. I go to the NCAA and it's essentially a 21st century plantation. I move to the NFL where they think that the payout that should happen to people who die from, from brain injuries in the long term should be different for black people versus white people. And on and on and on. There's a picture from, uh, uh, I think it's the Man United game that happened the other day, of grown-ups, grown men in the stadium, right on the sideline, was well, not sideline in football, but you know, in the early parts of the, the stadium, right close to the, the field. A Manchester United player is, is, is walking past, and the, the look on their face, you know what it reminded me of? I should do this, I should juxtapose it. I should find the picture and do it. 
the looks on their faces, the vitriol, the hate, the snarling open mouths of these men reminded me of that picture that you see of the young black girl being escorted into a school in the 60s. And the faces of these men and women, it was, scowling, pointing, sneering. What's to love? Jeering, jeering as well, making it threatening. You should put it on yep. on the podcast episode when we release it. You should uh, go. You you want to you want to go ahead and get people's attention. Do a little arts and crafts on your social media account to send that out. But I wanted to talk to you this week because of that law as well that you just mentioned. Because it's a dangerous time in Florida. The don't say gay legislation is it's just the worst of us. John, it's just, it is the worst of this movement in this country right now that is just hateful to the other. So you, as a strong man, a strong gay man who has been made weary by the amount of hate in the atmosphere, and it really does, it weakens me to see a man as strong as you weakened by this. But when I present this to you, John... This, the Florida don't say gay legislation, that can't feel to you like progress. Like, uh, you've been fighting many years on this, John. So it's not progress. I think I said last time that evil doesn't think strategically and, and therefore I, I don't fancy its chances in the long term. And that remains true. The problem is, in the interim, its tactical approach does real harm and damage you know, the statistics, the data that's out there that tells us about the um, disproportionate number of LGBT children who uh, who kill themselves, the disproportionate number of LGBT young people who find themselves murdered or harmed or bullied or abused by people, uh, that, that data's out there. It's not more important than what's happening to black people or, or, or brown people or people with disabilities, but it's a thing that we know. So to create a law that would simultaneously prevent the educated discourse around queerness and LGBTQ people and simultaneously force out of the closet children who might be even in primary or secondary, early secondary school, um, who could be 10 or 11. Knowing that parents, depending on their religiosity and close-mindedness perhaps, might respond incredibly poorly to that, even if it wasn't to throw them out of the house. I remember a young man who uh, uh, who came out a against my advice, um, but was encouraged to because everybody should come out regardless of the consequences, right? And his sister, that family paid for his sister to go to college and they didn't pay for him to go to college. Now, which of those two do you think is having the best life outcomes now, 12, 15 years later? Damn right, the sister is. Because going to college is still kind of important, even though it probably shouldn't have the prominence it does. But even that law facilitates that kind of deprivation for no reason. There's nothing to fear. I don't understand the blackness of someone's skin, the country of origin, the language they speak as a first language, their queerness or otherwise, is not an th intrinsic threat to other people. I don't know why people want to make it as if in our midst there are insidious citizens who are somehow almost like a virus that if we're allowed to exist, we might propagate 
and spread. That's not how it works. It's not how gay works. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. How do you absorb what feels to me like an amazingly obtuse reaction to critical race theory? John Oliver last week tonight did something on it that was very good this week. But I, uh, and I, you've heard me say before, the three words already, you start a fight, even though they're benign by themselves. It's critical. How dare you criticize me? Race. Oh, I'm going to put up my uh, fist. Theory. Oh, that's science. Get it all out of here. Never mind. I, I want to continue to whitewash my history. The idea that uh, we'd just be arguing about critical race theory in a way that would have Fox News used the weaponized the phrase uh, and used the phrase 5,000 times last year. You absorb all of that how as you watch a what seems like a really stupid fight, but then I think that saying black lives matter, I think that verb matter is fairly benign and yet it's an argument. Nope, black lives don't matter. It's, it's a, how, how do I take this? It is, it is the perfect storm of purposeful ignorance, um, the preference of ignorance for many people, and the purposeful weaponizing of one group of people against another. There's an excellent way to make sure that poor white folk, white people without means, will always sit on the side of the landed gentry. In, in Britain, this has been 
a, a way forward. And certainly in, in America, Jim, slavery, Jim Crow and through, it's been a way. To make sure that poor white people stay aligned is to make sure that you create a picture of the other that feels like a zero-sum game. Like, I'm a poor white person, and if I know that I'm going to remain a poor white person rather than be destined for millionaire status, um, I know that I'll remain a poor white person if we allow black people an equal chance to vote, for example. You look in America and things like the gerrymandering of states, these things should be an outrage to everybody who's interested in democracy. Laws about... about voting rights when the fraud is so small. Critical race theory, the idea that a, a, a somewhat obscure um, school of philosophical thought, the critical school, a German school, I think, of, of philosophy, has somehow been, because there's critical schools of thought of lots of different things, race is just one of them. Critical race theory is a response to liberal race theory. Liberal race theory says that bad racist do bad things and that's why there's racism in the world people do racist things and that's why there's racism that's liberal race theory critical race theory says that while yes it's true that there are people who are racist and do bad things to people on the basis of their skin color that the systems and processes that were built often a long time ago by people who did not have native people immigrants or or or, or black people for example in mind will have necessarily embedded some bias in the system. It doesn't mean that those people are evil. It's simply that you didn't have them in mind. All the houses that were built with multiple stairs up to the front door, all the restaurants and bars that are built with multiple stairs up, they were built without people who might be wheelchair users in mind. It doesn't mean that the person who built it, the architect, the builders, hated people in wheelchairs. It just means that they didn't think of people in wheelchairs and that's why they've created a building for which access to it is harder for people who might have mobility issues. It doesn't mean you hate all people with disabilities, but it doesn't matter whether you hate them or not because the construct that you've created will unfairly reduce the chances of people with mobility issues from entering. And that's what's happening, that's what happened and is continuing to happen in education, is what happens in policing and uh, jurisprudence, is what's happening in almost every segment of society. It doesn't matter if people are racist or not. It matters if the system perpetuates that. In South Africa, when the pencil test was being used, remember that, well, you may not remember, but you, the pencil test was the idea that one of the ways you would determine since blackness is... Um, nebulous in a country where the sun shines and you might have a tan as a white person. One of the ways you did it was by somebody, an administrator, you'd go to an office and they would try and pop a pencil into your hair and if it passed through, you passed and were white. If it stuck, then you were black. Does it matter if the person administering the test, checking the box, is a visceral racist or not? It doesn't matter because the system and the process in place there is about perpetuating a double a, a standard of difference between whiteness and blackness. One of the reasons you're tired, though, is because the way that you're describing it very gently, very neutrally, is some form of, hey, have you considered? No. And I'm not going to. And I want to fight. 
and don't tell me about your critical and don't tell me about your race and don't tell me about your theory. I'm not hateful. I don't wear a Klan hood. Have I considered? No, and I won't consider. And also, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, that, that is what it feels like. I, I, um, I, I did a, a thing the other day where one of the questions I was asked, and again, it always sounds like all of our work is about diversity, and it really isn't. But it's the most weighty of it. It's the most personally um, painful part of it. And one of the questions was a statement, um, and it came through, and it said, I feel like white men are being targeted. When's it going to be our turn? <laughs> and I, I read this in real time, and I, I, I couldn't show anything on my face, and, and I knew that I was furious but I, I couldn't because um, it wouldn't have been useful and I, and I must be useful I must help advance the cause because I'm super privileged so I'm often not impacted by what happens if I were to lash out because I'm protected in this house is in London I'm protected so and I was really reasonable but it was so painful it made me feel so um bad at my job I, I can't I, I see the words escape me at this point me the words escape me uh, I, I was so I felt so bad at my job even as I was eloquently dismantling this for the 10th time this month <sighs> you know what our lives are richer by our difference it, it's more complicated and it's there's friction it's weird that we recognize this in some ways and not in others. In England, do you know what our national dish is? Indian food. We, uh, you know, any person who's from India will tell you there's no such thing as Indian food. But nonetheless, curry, which is not a thing in India either, but curry and Indian food is our national thing. It, it's, the, it's the thing, you, you want a pint, you want some Indian food, you want some naan bread. So it's like we recognize the brilliance of some parts of what embracing new and different does um you you watch um art stuff you know whether it's theater or something else and you realize oh there's an intrinsic value to this person who might be gay or entertain you know but it's like when it comes to the the not the bits of that which aren't for you they aren't to be embraced if 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 a you know you'll you'll take the gay person who provides some brilliant piece of art or cinema, but the moment they want to kiss in Avengers Endgame, or talk about gay people in an Avengers Endgame, it's too much. If they want if gay people want to hold hands in the street, it's too much. If black people want to sing the lyrics to songs and and tell you that these aren't lyrics for you to sing, it's too much. Yeah, I. Uh, I need to recharge. All right, Spider-Man. Let me give you some light here. The new Spider-Man movie. Give us some stuff here where you get to dork out instead of talking to you about all the heavy stuff, the wearying stuff. But I did want people to hear from you just because it's a sensitive time in in Florida now. I mean, this. Uh, I just wanted people to hear from you uh, this week because... 
the legislation in Florida seems a little crueler than everywhere else in the United States, which is saying something. It's a prelude. That's what it is. It, it, it's simply a test case. It will happen elsewhere also, and people will embrace it uh, because they'll think that they're protecting family, f forgetting that we have families too. Um, Spider-Man. Spider-Man, um, I, I watched it a while ago. Um, I like Peter Parker as, as Spider-Man, but what, what I, I loved watching the three of them and how interesting, amazing really, because Tobey Maguire, whilst I think lauded for the first Spider-Man, pretty much went downhill in terms of people's appreciation of him in Spider-Man beyond the first one that he did. But watching the three of them together was like watching uh, a wonderful cautionary tale um, the other two to uh, Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield both acted as uh, wizened people who've lost loved ones and made mistakes and they guided this younger version of themselves this newer version of themselves it was really beautiful to watch it was really beautiful to watch uh, I, I, I'll be intrigued to see where it goes with the multiverse of madness which is coming out next i think in terms of doctor strange but it was um it was really beautiful to watch the interaction and it actually genuinely seemed um as stupid as this is for a fantasy film the, their interaction was so real that this amazing conversation the original spider-man um or at least in the Tobey Maguire version, he, he doesn't need web shooters. He just spits it out of his body. And this amazing conversation was had about, is that coming from inside of you? Does it come from anywhere else inside of you? It was so genuine and lovely and warm. And the thing I love about Marvel films and indeed Star Wars films is your ability to, whilst they are allegorical in sense, and, and they do speak to some of the ways, you know, certainly the media is, is a story for Spider-Man and his visibility and the treatment of him as a celebrity slash pariah. Their inability to zone out and forget that the, the world is, is frustrating. You view these things as an adult and as a child, correct? They're both there in the viewing experience, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, when I saw Black Panther, for example, um, I've got three screens here. And my third screen is um, uh, the Black Panther poster from the 16th of February 2018 um, when when the poster uh, when, when the film was going to show but this was just before that when the poster came out and that and the uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse uh, cartoon which features a, a, a black and Latino Spider-Man um, I, I still view them like I was as a child I'm looking at Chadwick Boseman here now and uh, I, I never thought I would see this. I remember reading the comic when I was eight and seeing this, this king, regal, smart, intelligent, an entire culture, no litter in the streets, no crime to speak of. Every single smart scientist, doctor, theorist, black. I just thought this is amazing. I was the kid who stood, I wasn't the kid, I was the grown-up who stood looking at the poster in the theater. Um, as you, you know, as you walk through, I looked at the poster and stood and saw my face on top of the face of Chadwick Boseman and I was like, I wish, I wish I was that good. 
fantasy. So I'm definitely a kid when fantasy. I Fantasy. Well, it's just interesting that you never imagined that it would be so. And here we are talking about don't say gay legislation and Saudi Arabia and all this stuff. And the only place that you do see a black man allowed to be king in pristine streets is in the childhood fantasy. Yeah. It, it's not the only place. There are amazing, you know, examples and role models. Um, it's just that. I suppose what's missing is the idea that when people look at you, it would be nice if there was a 50-50 chance that what they saw was king, not criminal. It took a uh, sad turn at the end. It was sad. I feel like, uh, do you have something back there? Like, just to stump the each, do you have one mispronunciation back there that I can give him just to stir him up, just to have a better uh, a better note than the cynical one we just ended this with, <laughs> which, which made my heart drop. It's just, it's it really is a careening uh, joyride through light and darkness with you every time. Every time. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, do you have something? I'm going to get Chris Whittingham to give you something so that I can punctuate this in a light fashion. Because every once in a while, people get mad at me that I do too serious with you. But I have found you throughout. I, I think, you know what, I do slightly regret that. Because, you know, you and I, though we haven't spent that much time in the last three years because of obvious reasons, the pandemic and stuff. I've never, I've never thought you saw me as dour and um, I know you think I'm interesting, but I, you also know that I can be fun and funny. And I always think it's, and my teammates know this, right? So people around me, they know that, that I can be fun and irreverent and stupid in a fun way. And it always seems like a shame that if I'm on national television in Britain, it's for some awful thing. It, it's mental health crisis, it's, it's you know, COVID crisis, it's something else. And it's, I think people think I don't have a sense of humor and it's kind of a shame because I find it hard to muster at times, but it's there. Okay, I then that's my fault. It's a failing on my part, not uh, bringing it out of you more. But I also think, maybe not unlike the British media, that your voice is important in times like these because- Agreed. <laughs> Uh, it's more important for me to be this than to be funny, that's for sure. I disagree. Let's play the Stugat <laughs> sound for him and see what this is. And Leonard DiCaprio at a football game. You got to be kidding me. Leonard DiCaprio. Leonard DiCaprio. Really? Was it was it Leonardo DiCaprio? Yes, it was. Yes, no. But oh, so was, I win some uh, meat. <laughs> I win some the meat. Yes, yes. <laughs> all right. This a, is the fourth time I win something. All right, so a tainted <laughs> victory. We'll give it to him. We'll get him out of here on that dreadful production note. See you later. <laughs> See you later. A victory. I win. <laughs> I'm out. What a fraudulent win. What a fraud win. I'll take it! <laughs> <laughs> Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.